We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry with overpriced, underperforming products and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. And away we go, episode 133 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, August 30th, 2021, the day before the Washington football team must cut down its active roster to 53 players to begin the 2021 regular season. This Monday, August 30th, is two days after the end of Washington's 2021 preseason. Pretty that Washington preseason finale was not a 37-3 loss to the Baltimore Ravens at FedEx Field on Saturday evening. Washington did not play any of its projected starters. The Ravens did play a good number of starters, not necessarily for that long, but long enough for running back J.K. Dobbins to suffer a reported season-ending torn left ACL. I hope That preseason winning streak is worth it, Ravens. Although, have you heard or read about the particulars of the record that the Ravens broke on Saturday night? So the win for the Ravens was their NFL record 20th consecutive preseason win. 
The Ravens entered the game with a 19-game preseason winning streak, which was tied for the longest preseason winning streak in NFL history. Vince Lombardi's Green Bay Packers won 19 consecutive preseason games from 1959 to 1962, although that streak ended with a loss to a team of college All-Stars in 1963. Lombardi's Packers won 23 consecutive preseason games against NFL teams. So you could argue that that 23-game streak by Lombardi's Packers is the real NFL record for a preseason winning streak because the loss to the college All-Stars was more of an exhibition game than a preseason game. Whatever. I could not care less about the Ravens' 20-game preseason winning streak. I do care, though, about our football team, the Washington football team, the team with no name, but apparently with three final name candidates, although I know that some believe that the permanent name already has been selected. But anyway, this is a special Washington football team post-game installment of the Al Galdi podcast. No, I'm not going to get into every granular detail of that debacle of a game on Saturday evening, but I do want to talk about a few things, including Ron Rivera not playing any of his key players, some roster battles that got even murkier, and yes, Dustin Hopkins, an awful blocked slash missed 55-yard field goal attempt in the second quarter, but then a 48-yard field goal with seven seconds left in that second quarter. The Dustin Hopkins dilemma now is even more of a dilemma, although not according to Ron Rivera, at least not what he continues to say publicly. By the way, you will hear every relevant thing that Ron Rivera said regarding that preseason finale on this installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Also, wait until you hear what old D-Hop said during his postgame press conference on Saturday night. If you are a longtime listener, you will be, shall we say, entertained by what Hopkins had to say. I can promise you that. Next segment, I'll give you the front five, my five biggest takeaways from the game. I also have a bunch of additional aspects of the game and of what's going on with Washington to get into as, yeah, man, the cut down to 53 is on Tuesday, August 31st, 4 p.m. Eastern. That is the deadline by which each NFL team must cut down to 53 players. I will talk Nationals. Big news announced by the Nats on Sunday morning. Their top prospect, catcher Caper Ruiz, will be making his Nats debut on Monday night in game one of a three-game series against the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park. I've got a lot to say about that and about the Nats series at the New York Mets over the weekend. The Nats lost two or three, although you would think that the Nats swept the Mets given the controversy with the Mets right now. Javier Baez, what a dope. You've been following this? Baez and Francisco Lindor giving thumbs down signs at City Field to celebrate and to also knock Mets fans who have been booing Baez and Lindor. Please get a life, get a clue. Anyone who says that fans shouldn't boo is so wrong. You as a fan have every right to boo. You don't have the right to act like a jerk. You don't have the right to be vile. You don't have the right to be violent, but boo all you want. But that is a New York problem. Uh, Speaking of problems, uh, the Tampa Bay Rays, you could say, were a problem for the Orioles this season. The O's swept by the Rays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards over the weekend, concluding a 1-18 and season (laughs) against the American League leading Rays. Yeah, 1-18. and I will properly address that later 
in the show. This is a big time of year. Football season is ramping up. There's a lot going on with the Washington football team. We go in-depth on the Washington football team on every installment of the Al Galdi podcast. If you don't already subscribe to the pod, please consider doing so. Subscribing costs you nothing, helps out the podcast a lot. And if you haven't yet given the podcast a five-star rating and or haven't yet written like a one or two-sentence review saying how much you like the podcast, please consider doing so. Those things cost you nothing. They take less than a minute to do, and they help us out a lot. And I thank you for doing those things. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Michael King, writes Michael, wow, Galdi, kicker, question mark, like Turgeon, flush. Tweet from Shiftless Element. Beyond sitting starters, preseason offense has been, uh, what's plainer than vanilla? Ice milk? No idea what to expect in week one. It's in Ron we trust to the extreme. Yeah, you're right. There is a major element of in Ron we trust if you're optimistic for week one against the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field. And I am optimistic for week one against the Chargers at FedEx Field. But Washington very clearly went vanilla, went vanilla ice vanilla this preseason. And remember, Ron admitted to us on August 9th that he hates the preseason. Do you remember that? I talked about that on the podcast. Ron admitting on August 9th, yeah, I hate the preseason. Knowing what we now know, we should have taken that admission as a sign that we probably weren't going to see a lot of starters in the 2021 preseason. And we probably were going to see a lot of vanilla, vanilla ice vanilla in the 2021 preseason. Well, Ron, as most of you listening know, battled cancer last year. Ron's cancer was a version of skin cancer called squamous cell carcinoma. Skin health obviously matters a lot. Skin health is the expertise of a big supporter of the Al Galdi podcast, Dr. George Verghese. If you or someone you know is having skin issues, including skin cancer, contact Dr. George Verghese. He is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He's a board-certified dermatologist at Mohs Surgeon. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland focuses on medical dermatology and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care, including something really special and cutting-edge, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure that you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401. Or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. 
All right, so let's get right into it. The front five, my five biggest takeaways from the Washington football team's preseason concluding 37-3. Lost to the Baltimore Ravens at FedEx Field on Saturday evening. As you likely know by now, I'm a big fan of just getting right into stuff, okay? I'm not big on the fluff talk, all right? If you want fluff talk, if you want to hear from a bunch of fluffers, uh, go elsewhere. There are plenty of outlets that will provide you with fluffers. No fluffers on this podcast, especially on installments of the podcast that immediately follow Washington football team games, even preseason games, even blowout losses in preseason finales. So takeaway number one, I do not have a problem with Ron Rivera having not played any key players in this game. So for the record, 33 Washington players did not play in this game. 33. It turns out that Ron Rivera, aka Don Ron, did treat this preseason game number three like the traditional preseason game number four. This was despite Ron having said the previous Saturday, August 21st, that Washington would approach the game, quote, as a mock regular season week, end quote, and would, quote, put together 100% game plan, end quote. That was Ron's syntax, not mine. Uh, But I said off those comments that the comments indicated that this preseason game number three would be treated like the traditional preseason game number three, the dress rehearsal. Because why would you 100% game plan just to play a bunch of backups? But it turns out that uh, that's precisely what ended up happening here. And, you know, you figure that, hey, Washington may have 100% game planned, But uh, that was done for mental and like preparation purposes for key players, not for actual game action. And yeah, uh, if you're wondering, did Washington really game plan for that game? Because it sure didn't look like it. I'm with you. It didn't always look like it. But uh, that's what you're left to assume here at this point. Uh, This was Ron during his postgame press conference on Saturday night on why he didn't play key players in this game. Didn't want to get anybody hurt. You know, we've had a good camp. It's been successful. We've a lot of guys work. Um, a lot of people that we feel really comfortable and confident in who they are for us. And uh, we just felt exposing was not the thing to do. And uh, so we didn't expose. All right, so Ron during his postgame press conference saying that he didn't play key players in this game because he, quote, didn't want to get anybody hurt, end quote. I don't blame him one bit. There is no right answer for how much an NFL team should play key players in the preseason. You can find validation for however you feel. There are examples of good teams playing key players in the preseason quite a bit. There are examples of good teams barely playing key players in the preseason. There are examples of bad teams playing key players in the preseason quite a bit. There are examples of bad teams barely playing key players in the preseason. Look around the NFL. There was a wide variety of approaches to the 2021 NFL preseason by teams. Our old pal Sean McVay, the Los Angeles Rams head coach, the former Washington offensive coordinator, he essentially never plays starters in preseasons. This is now four times in four preseasons for him as an NFL head coach, and he has had spectacular success as an NFL head coach. Washington's week one opponent, For the 2021 season, the Los Angeles Chargers, they did not play their second year starting quarterback, Justin Herbert, at all in the 2021 preseason. However, 
the two-time reigning and defending AFC champion Kansas City Chiefs. They played Patrick Mahomes in all three of their games in the 2021 preseason. The reigning and defending Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They played Tom Brady in two of their three games in the 2021 preseason. The Buffalo Bills had an interesting approach. They, in their preseason ending 19-0 win over the Green Bay Packers on Saturday afternoon, had Josh Allen play for almost the entire first half. He went 20 of 26 for 194 yards, two touchdowns, and no interceptions. But that was the only game in which Allen played in the 2021 preseason. A head coach has to do what he feels is right for his team. And while you shouldn't coach scared, you also shouldn't take unnecessary risk regarding injury when you are a head coach. Ron, in not playing key players for Washington in this third and final preseason game, avoided unnecessary injury risk. Ron said it at his postgame press conference, right? Quote, we just felt exposing was not the thing to do, so we didn't expose them, end quote. And again, I don't blame him. The Ravens did not avoid unnecessary injury risk. They played key players, albeit for just a bit. But what happened, right? Running back J.K. Dobbins in the first quarter got carted off the field with a left knee injury that was suffered on the Ravens' first offensive drive. And we on Sunday had multiple reports that that left knee injury is a season-ending torn left ACL. And, you know, thinking about this Dobbins situation, I don't know about you, it brought me right back to what happened to Washington with Jordan Reed two years ago. Jordan Reed in the 2019 preseason didn't play until the third game, but he in that game, a 19-7 win at the Atlanta Falcons on August 22nd, 2019, suffered a concussion. That was the seventh documented concussion for Reed going back to his time in Florida, and he never played for Washington again. Washington placed Reed on the reserve injured list on October 12, 2019, off him having been inactive for each of the first five games of Washington's 2019 season. Washington, on February 20th, 2020, released Reed, and Reed now is retired. His final snap for Washington was him getting concussed in some meaningless preseason game. I can't stand that that is how Reed's time with Washington ended. You know, there's also this. That Ron Rivera played so few key players in this game is further proof that a two-game preseason would be just fine. Here we had the first preseason that was a three-game preseason, right? Unless you played in the Hall of Fame game, then you had a four-game preseason. But this was the first preseason that, for most teams, was a three-game preseason. This also was the first preseason in two years due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And yet, and yet, Ron chose to treat Washington's third preseason game like the traditional fourth preseason game, a throwaway game used for backups. Now, is there value in the preseason for backups and fringe roster players? Absolutely. But head coaches could easily determine back end of the roster players by having just two preseason games and maybe some joint practices and or scrimmages. The idea that an NFL team needs four or even three preseason games to determine its backups is wrong. And we're seeing that here. These NFL head coaches are telling you via their actions, we don't really need three preseason games. Two is plenty. 
Now, when it comes to determining who should sell your home, well, that's easy. John Grandland of Real Broker, because he offers commission flex. Listen up if you're looking to sell your home. The days of some flat commission rate, regardless of how easy it is to sell your home, are over. John G is changing the game with his groundbreaking concept of commission flex. You know that Ron Rivera loves to say position flex. In fact, he said it again during his day after the game Zoom press conference on Sunday. This was Ron on Sunday on Sadiq Charles. Sadiq has progressed very well. And we're very excited. One thing he does give us, he has shown he has position flex in terms of four spots. He can play either guard, either tackle. There it was, position flex. Ron cannot help himself when it comes to that phrase, but John Granlin can help you with commission flex. What is commission flex, you ask? It's very simple flexible commission rates. You see, not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, you shouldn't have to pay 6%. John Granlin will put together a marketing plan for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. You see, John Granlin has a menu of commission packages from which you can choose, including selling your home for free. Yeah, you heard that right. For free, zero commission. Some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Granlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar. Maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly and there is never any obligation to list or sell. If you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, if you're even just thinking about selling your home, do yourself a favor, call John Granlin and see what he can do for you. This is a phone call that could make and or save you tens of thousands of dollars. You owe it to yourself to make this call. You have nothing to lose. Call John G, 703 703- 537-6747. He's a great guy, big Washington football team fan, big Nats fan, and he understands the DMV real estate market like nobody else. When you talk to John Granlin, make sure that you tell him that Al Galdi sent you, and make sure that you ask John G about what you keep hearing about on the Al Galdi podcast, Commission Flex. That phone number again, 703 703- 537-6747 or visit John G sells for free.com. That's John G sells for free.com. John Grandlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, he is the originator of Commission Flex. Position Flex. Yes, Ron. Just like Position Flex. We continue with the front five. My five biggest takeaways from Washington's preseason ending 37-3 loss to the Baltimore Ravens at FedEx Field on Saturday evening. Takeaway number two, take nothing from this game in terms of the overall performance by the Washington football team. Now, would it have been nice for Washington to have played better? Yeah. But should you take this performance in any way as an indication of what's to come in the 2021 regular season for the Washington football team? No. 33 Washington players did not play in this game. Among the 33 Washington players who did not play in this game were like every key defensive player who you can think of. Chase Young, Montez Sweat, Jonathan Allen, Deron Payne, Matt Ioannidis, Jamin Davis, Cole Holcomb, John Bostic, William Jackson III, Kendall Fuller, 
Benjamin St. Juice, Landon Collins, Cameron Curl, Bobby McCain. Yet other guys out due to injury. James Smith-Williams, leg injury. Casey Tuhill, toe. Derek Forrest, hamstring injury. So yeah, you are missing quite a few people. So with that as the backdrop, yeah, Washington's defense got shredded in this game. Washington allowed the Ravens to score 37 points, go 9 of 14 on third downs, and generate 491 total net yards of offense. Ravens backup quarterback Tyler Huntley accounted for five touchdowns, four touchdown passes, and a touchdown run. Again, would it have been nice for Washington to have played better? Yeah. Did the Ravens ultimately play a bunch of backups too? Yeah, but I cannot get worked up about that defensive performance among the many Washington offensive players who did not play in this game. Ryan Fitzpatrick, Taylor Heineke, Terry McLaurin, Curtis Samuel, Adam Humphreys, Cam Sims, Diami Brown, Logan Thomas, Antonio Gibson, J.D. McKissick, Charles Leno Jr., Eric Flowers, Wes Schweitzer, Chase Roulier, Brandon Sheriff, Samuel Cosby. I mean, come on! Washington's offense, yes, was brutal, but listen to all of those guys who didn't play, okay? Now, would it have been nice if Washington moved the football a little bit? Yes, and Washington barely moved the football, just three points, just one of 11 on third downs, just 173 total net yards of offense. Washington lost the time of possession battle by 23 minutes, 46 seconds. The game was a joke, I'll grant you that, But the game was a joke also because Washington played very few players of any real consequence. I mean, Washington's starting offensive line on Saturday evening was Cornelius Lucas at left tackle, Wes Martin at left guard, Tyler Larson at center, Bo Benshaw at right guard, Sadiq Charles at right tackle. Bo Benshaw, in fact, played on every Washington offensive snap in the game. Bo Benchol. Be honest. How many of you listening right now knew that Bo Benchol was on the Washington football team prior to me just saying that name a bunch of times? Bo Benchol. I'm sorry. I can't get worked up about Washington not looking good in this game. Takeaway number three, uh, both Peyton Barber and Jarrett Patterson had bad games. Forget about Washington keeping four running backs on its season opening 53-man roster. Maybe Washington should only keep two running backs on the season opening 53-man roster. I'm only kidding. But geez, uh, neither Barber nor Patterson look good in this game. Peyton Barber had four carries for 12 yards and no receptions on two targets as he was guilty of a drop. He played on 22% of Washington's offensive snaps. Barber on Washington's first offensive drive had a nice run, but he also had a drop and a pass pro fail. So this was the first offensive drive of the game, resulted in a first quarter punt, second snap of the drive. Barber, a first and 10, seven yard under center handoff run. Okay, that was nice. But third snap of the drive, Barber, a drop on a Kyle Allen second and three shotgun incompletion. Fourth snap of the drive, Allen got blasted by Ravens linebacker Patrick Queen on a third and three shotgun incompletion intended for Dax Milne. Queen ran right through Peyton Barber. Uh, Barber had two one-yard runs on Washington's second offensive drive, which resulted in a first quarter three and out. First snap of the drive, Barber first and 10, one yard shotgun handoff run. Second snap of the drive, Barber second and nine, one yard under center handoff run. Jared Patterson, the darling of this Washington preseason Not a great conclusion to an otherwise really good preseason for Patterson. He had two carries from minus one yard, 
Three receptions for 15 yards on six targets with perhaps as many as three drops. He definitely had two drops. He played on 39% of Washington's offensive snaps. Patterson had two bad plays on Washington's third offensive drive, which resulted in a late first quarter three and out. Second snap of the drive, Patterson, a second and 10 shotgun handoff run for a two-yard loss. Third snap of the drive, Patterson, a drop on a Kyle Allen third and 12 shotgun incompletion. Patterson had two more bad plays on Washington's fourth offensive drive, which resulted in a second quarter three and out. First snap of the drive, Patterson, a first and 10, one yard offset eye toss run. Second snap of the drive, Patterson, a drop on a Kyle Allen second and nine shotgun incompletion. Washington's sixth offensive drive of the game resulted in Dustin Hopkins late second quarter 48-yard field goal that uh, cut Washington's deficit to 23-3. Eighth snap of the drive, Patterson allowed the ball to go off of his hands on a Kyle Allen second and 10 shotgun incompletion. Now, the pass from Allen wasn't great, so if you want to say that's not a drop, okay, fine. But Brian Mitchell once told me, Anytime the ball hits a target's hands and the catch isn't made, that's a drop. That's how Beamich views things. So you know what? If Beamich can view things that way, we're allowed to view things that way as well. But whatever you want to say about that play, this is not a good game for Jared Patterson. And he, at the very least, had two drops. This is Ron Rivera during his postgame press conference on Saturday night on Patterson's Drops trying too hard to make plays you know I'm watching Jerry Patterson turn his head before he completes the catch more so than anything else and just tells me he's anxious he wants the ball to make a play and sometimes you know you just got to understand just settle in do what you've been doing uh, he'll be fine uh, he's a young man that's going to learn from this and grow from this and uh, you know we'll see what happens Yes, we will. Now, do I think Jarrett Patterson's performance on Saturday evening should cost him a spot on Washington's season opening 53-man roster? No, but that was not a good game for Jarrett Patterson. Takeaway number four, Washington's competition at corner got more interesting. So we know who Washington's top four corners are, William Jackson III, Kendall Fuller, Benjamin St. Juice, and Jimmy Moreland. It sure seemed like Torrey McTire was making Washington's season opening 53-man roster as the fifth corner, and that may still be the case, but Torrey McTire got banged up on Saturday evening. He flashed, but he got banged up. So first, the flash. Uh, Ravens' first offensive drive resulted in Jake Verity's first quarter missed 40-yard field goal attempt. Six snap of the drive, McTire tight coverage on a Lamar Jackson first and 10 deep pistol incompletion intended for receiver Devin Duvernay. Uh, Ravens' second offensive drive resulted in Tyler Huntley's late first quarter second and six 10-yard shotgun scramble touchdown run. Third snap of the drive, McTire a pass defense on a Tyler Huntley second and seven under center deep incompletion intended for receiver Deion Kane. As Kane had McTire beat off, by the way, pushing off McTire, and was in the process of potentially making the catch, but McTire was able to grab Kane's right arm from behind and prevent the catch from being made. That was a nice job by McTire, but he was shaken up on the play and then ended up leaving the game due to entering concussion protocol. Now, does he definitely have a concussion? We don't know. Uh, If he does have a concussion, is it severe? We don't know. But is it possible that Washington puts Torrey McTire on the reserve injured list. Yeah, I mean, anything's possible. Now, remember, if you put someone on the reserve injured list prior to the cut down to 53, uh, that means that that person cannot be activated off the reserve injured list at any point in the upcoming season. So, you know, I don't think that Washington would do that. I would certainly hope that the concussion, if McTire suffered a concussion, uh, isn't that serious to where the guy has to be placed on the reserve injured list. But we just don't know right now about the status 
of Torrey McTire. So that stood out in terms of the quarterback competition. Uh, does what happened to Torrey McTire at all make Troy Apke more viable when it comes to him potentially making the season opening 53-man roster for the Washington football team? Apke, of course, making the transition from safety to corner. I thought Apke had a very mixed game on Saturday evening. So he did shine on special teams because we all know he is a special teams ace. Uh, Apke on the penultimate snap of the first quarter tackled receiver James Prochet the second on a 14-yard punt return as Apke actually ran past Prochet but then tackled him from behind. But on the Ravens' fifth offensive drive, Apke got beat by receiver Benjamin Victor on Tyler Huntley's late second quarter first and 10 25-yard shotgun touchdown pass to Victor. Now, Apke did have his moments in coverage. Ravens' seventh offensive drive resulted in Tyler Huntley's third quarter first and goal 10-yard offset eye boot touchdown pass to receiver Tylan Wallace. Seventh snap of that drive, Apke credited it with a pass defense on a Tyler Huntley first and 10 shotgun deep in completion intended for receiver Deion Kane, who actually had a step on Apke and could have made the catch, but Apke got on top of Kane's back as he was trying to make the catch while falling down face forward in the end zone. But ninth snap of the drive, Apke got beat by receiver Benjamin Victor on Tyler Huntley's third and 10, 13-yard shotgun completion to Victor. That was the play on which Jeremy Reeves had a 10-yard unnecessary roughness penalty. Uh, What about someone like Daryl Roberts? He had a big tackle on Saturday night. Ravens third offensive drive resulted in Jake Verity's second quarter 25-yard field goal for a 10-0 Ravens lead. Remember the Washington football team defense on that drive holding up inside the red zone. The snap right before the field goal, a third and two at the three. Roberts tackling running back Nate McCrary on a shotgun handoff run for a four-yard loss. You still also have to think about someone like Danny Johnson, who could be Washington's primary kickoff returner again. Whether Washington keeps five or six corners is a big question. Who that fifth corner is, is a, I think, smaller question. I still think it would be Torrey McTire, but you don't know until you know. And if, in fact, the number is six in terms of the corners on Washington's season opening 53-man roster, well, who is that sixth corner? Apke is a contender. Daryl Roberts is a contender. Danny Johnson is a contender. There are some others to be thinking about as well. And then takeaway number five, the Dustin Hopkins situation, now even more of a situation. I said on Friday's show, episode 132, that just because Dustin Hopkins went three for three on field goals in Washington's previous preseason game, the win over the Cincinnati Bengals at FedEx Field on August 20th, didn't mean that the Dustin Hopkins issue had just gone away. And sure enough, Dustin Hopkins on Saturday night went one for two on field goals. The miss was a bizarro miss. A second quarter 55-yard field goal attempt that officially was blocked, but it still is unclear whether that kick was blocked or just was a missed field goal try. Uh, I guess technically it was blocked. The trajectory of the ball appears to change. I know the thought is that the ball hit like a face mask. So yeah, I mean, I guess that's technically a block, but that's not really a block. Whether the kick, though, was actually blocked or not doesn't matter. It was a terribly executed kick, and that was by Dustin Hopkins' own admission. We'll get to that in just a bit. But first, I want you to take a listen to this. This was Ron Rivera during his postgame press conference on Saturday night on Hopkins' blocked-slash-missed 55-yard field goal attempt in the second quarter. 
Well, you know, I, I really didn't care if he made that 55-yarder. What I was really more concerned about was the operation. I wanted to see a good snap, a good hold, and a good swing. That's all I was looking at. You know, it was a little bit further than what they had given me as his, as his distance. But I was going to send him out there because I wanted to see the operation. And that, to me, is probably more important than what the result was going to be. If he had made it, great. If he didn't, as long as it was a good operation, I'm okay with that. Because that's what this is really about. This was really about getting the operation done. Came back, kicked another one. It was perfect. I loved the operation. Good snap, good place, good stroke. So Ron said, quote, I really didn't care if he made that 55-yarder. What I was really more concerned about was the operation. I wanted to see a good snap, a good hold, and a good swing. That's all I was looking at, end quote. Okay, so it was the operation that was under evaluation on that 55-yard field goal attempt for Dustin Hopkins in the second quarter. Not, you know, whether D-Hop actually made the kick. Now, Hopkins did bounce back. He connected on a 48-yard field goal with seven seconds left in the second quarter to cut Washington's deficit to 23-3. That was a good-looking field goal make. So we give credit where credit is due. But that second quarter, in a nutshell, is Dustin Hopkins. You don't know what to expect. That kick on the 55-yard attempt, again, whether that thing was technically blocked or not, that was a terrible kick. And then the 48-yarder was the thing of beauty. So that brings us to Dustin Hopkins during his post-game press conference. And this is a lengthy cut that I'm about to play for you, but I want to play this thing for you uh, because Hopkins does put the blame for the blocked-slash-missed 55-yard field goal attempt on himself, says that it, quote, was just 100% on me, end quote. Look, Hopkins is a good dude. He comes off like a real stand-up guy uh, in this cut that I'm about to play for you. But also... Pay close attention to the phrase that Hopkins uses in this cut. Yeah, um, well, thank the Lord for preseason, first of all. Um, but uh, it's honestly, Cheese has been so good on so many levels. Um, it's just, and, and Tress always. Um, but our, our rhythm was off for a little bit. Um, that was not what happened tonight. Like, that was just 100% me. That operation was great. Um but uh, yeah, I guess I guess you're trying to you're trying to learn. I'm trying to learn every rep. So, like for example, tonight this would be a learning experience. Um, going out there, we call for field goal. It's it's one of those situations: are we punting? Are we field goal? Run out, call field goal. Um, I'm looking at the play clock, and uh, well, let me backtrack. You know, I've talked to y'all. I think I've said this before of wanting to be process oriented. And so if if I if I put myself in a position to be successful through the process that kind of I set up pre-snap, I can live with the results. Tonight, my, my process was not good on the first kick, and it bothers me. Um, so trying to be process-oriented, uh, going to that kick, I'm looking at the play clock, and all I'm thinking about is trying to hurry up. And I didn't have any of the keys that I usually have going into a kick that typically make me successful. And so I hate that uh, a huge mental error led to poor physical execution. Um, and then recognizing that after and being able to make sure that I'm just harping on those keys, uh, I was able to come out and, and hit a better ball. So, um, yeah, I guess just learning through every rep, but also getting that, gaining that chemistry um, with cheese and tress in, in timing and rhythm. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard unless you're in it to feel like um, how even small um, – pauses or small uh, jumping it can like 
um, change the way you feel going into a ball. And uh, there are things that I can do. Like ultimately, I'm the last guy to get a look at the ball, uh, and I need to I need to make kicks. And uh, I've been playing long enough where that that falls on me, and I I want to do that better. Uh, so just learning, I guess. All right, so like I said, Dustin Hopkins comes off like a stand-up guy. You know, he later in the press conference talked about some personal stuff he's dealing with right now. His brother-in-law hospitalized with COVID-19. So, uh, you know, I I wish Dustin Hopkins all the best, certainly in that regard. Everyone is rooting for the guy, but he's not getting the job done. That's as clear as can be. And truth be told, he hasn't been getting the job done for a while. But do I have to even point out the phrase that Dustin Hopkins used in that cut. You know, years ago, then-Washington quarterback Kirk Cousins got hammered for saying the following. I'm a little bit more process-oriented. Yes, Kirky, we know. Well, here we are, years later, and a man who you could argue is the kicker version of Kirk Cousins, Dustin Hopkins, used that phrase. You know, I've talked to y'all, I think, I've said this before, of wanting to be process-oriented. Yes, process-oriented. The phrase lives on. You know, I've talked to y'all, I think, I've said this before, of wanting to be process-oriented. Yes, Dustin Hopkins, we now know that you, like Kirky, are process-oriented. In fact, let's play the two back-to-back and just see how they sound. Our two process-oriented warriors on the Washington football team, past and present, Kirk Cousins, the OG process-oriented Washington player, and Dustin Hopkins, the current process-oriented Washington player. You know, I've talked to y'all, I think, I've said this before, of wanting to be process-oriented. I'm a little bit more process-oriented. There it is. The phrase lives on. Process-oriented. Kirk Cousins a few years ago. Dustin Hopkins right now. So Dustin Hopkins in the 2021 preseason went 4-7 on field goals. 1-2 on field goals in this blowout loss to the Ravens at FedEx Field on Saturday evening. 3-3 on field goals in Washington's win over the Cincinnati Bengals at FedEx Field on August 20th. Although, remember, all three of those kicks were shorties. A late first quarter 34-yarder, a late second quarter 31-yarder, and a third quarter 31-yarder. And 0-2 on field goals in Washington's preseason opening loss at the New England Patriots on August 12th. Hopkins missed a first quarter 40-yard field goal attempt and a third quarter 50-yard field goal attempt. So you tell me, do you feel confident in Dustin Hopkins as Washington's kicker going into the 2021 season? Because I don't. The hope is that the Hopkins who we saw down the stretch of last regular season is the Hopkins who we see this coming regular season, because it sure seems like he's going to be Washington's kicker for this coming season once again. This was Ron Rivera at his day after the game Zoom press conference on Sunday on how comfortable he is in Hopkins as Washington's kicker, given how Hopkins preseason went. I'm as comfortable as I can be right now. I mean, you know, it's that, it's that, um, it's that old saying, it's not a problem until it's a problem. 
and uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna go with him. We're gonna ride with him mostly just because he, he he got hot last year at the end of the year and really started to kick well. You know, I think uh, hopefully he'll continue to work, continue to work through those situations, and 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 we can hopefully get him hot, and we'll be fine. Yes, we'll be fine. Hopkins, over the first 10 games of Washington's 2020 regular season, went just 14 of 20 on field goals. But Hopkins, over Washington's final six games of the 2020 regular season, went 13 of 14 on field goals. That obviously is the Dustin Hopkins who we need to see this coming regular season. So there you go, the front five. My five biggest takeaways from Washington's preseason ending 37-3 loss to the Baltimore Ravens at FedEx Field on Saturday evening. Takeaway number one, I do not have a problem with Ron Rivera having not played any key players in this game. Takeaway number two, take nothing from this game in terms of the overall performance by the Washington football team. Takeaway number three, both Peyton Barber and Jarrett Patterson had bad games. Takeaway number four, Washington's competition at corner got more interesting. And takeaway number five, the Dustin Hopkins situation, now even more of a situation. Well, if your lawn is a situation that you're not happy with, know that Weedman can fix it. Weedman cares for your lawn, so you don't have to. Weedman provides what your lawn needs to look great. Fertilization, weed control, aeration, seeding, as well as a variety of other services. If you don't have the time or the knowledge to make your lawn look great, no worries. Let Weedman take care of your lawn. Weedman is a national network of locally owned franchises, so you'll receive the personal service that you deserve. Weedman answers your phone calls and emails promptly. Weedman does what it says it's going to do. And I know all that sounds simple, right? And it is simple, but it's not nearly as common as it should be. When you call Weedman, you're speaking to someone in an office in your area, not somewhere in the Midwest. You're not waiting for 30 minutes to speak to someone. Weedman actually has real answers that have meaning in your area. If you have that little area on your lawn that needs attention, Weedman will take care of that area. You're not dealing with some huge faceless corporation that treats you like a number. Weedman uses superior products that really improve your soil, and Weedman only treats what needs to be treated. If you're not satisfied with your lawn or with who is treating your lawn, make the switch to Weedman. Weedman's products are of the highest quality and Weedman does not cut corners. A beautiful spring lawn starts in the fall and so Weedman is offering something special to listeners of the Al Galdi podcast. A fall tune-up at a great price. An aeration and two fall fertilization services for just $209. That's about $100 off the usual price for those services. The price is a steal. It applies to lawns of up to 6,000 square feet. So here's what you do. Call 571-340-3400. When you call, make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast. So you get the special deal. Again, an aeration and two fall fertilization services for just $209. Again, that's about $100 off the usual price for those services. Again, that phone number, 571-340-3400. And make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast so you get the special deal. I want you to get that deal. You can also Google Weedman and make a web request. Just make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast. Weedman, a great lawn at a great price with great personal service. 
All right, let's get to some other items from the Washington football team's preseason ending 37-3 loss to the Baltimore Ravens at FedEx Field on Saturday evening. Among the many Washington players who did not play in this game were Ryan Fitzpatrick and Taylor Heineke. That is, by the way, further confirmation that Heineke is the QB2. Not that that shocks anybody, but I did feel like that was worth pointing out. He should be the QB2. Kyle Allen was Washington's starting quarterback and played for the entire first half. Steven Montez played for the entire second half. Neither guy looked great, although with Allen, there is an important note. So Allen went just 10 of 22 for just 100 yards, no touchdowns, and no interceptions. He was not sacked, but Washington, with Allen at quarterback, was guilty of perhaps as many as five drops. One drop by Peyton Barber, potentially three drops by Jared Patterson, and a potential drop by Antonio Gandy-Golden. We talked about the drops slash potential drops by Barber and Patterson during the front five, Uh, but Antonio Gandy-Golden had what looked like a drop in this game. Washington's fifth offensive drive resulted in that uh, Dustin Hopkins second quarter blocked 55-yard field goal attempt. Fifth snap of the drive, Antonio Gandy-Golden had a pass go off his left hand on a Kyle Allen first and 10 shotgunning completion. So that's like that potential third drop for Jared Patterson. Is that all on the target? Maybe not. You know, was Kyle Allen perfect on that throw? No. But again, the Brian Mitchell rule of if the target can get a hand on the football, then the target should make the catch. Antonio Gandy-Golden on that play did not make the catch. Some notable plays for Kyle Allen included a bunch of plays involving Antonio Gandy-Golden. Washington's first offensive drive was the first offensive drive of the game, resulted in a first quarter punt. First snap of the drive, Kyle Allen, a first and 10, 18 yard shotgun completion to Antonio Gandy Golden. That's the thing. Washington's offense got off to a really nice start with that play. And then, of course, came the rest of the game. But Washington's fifth offensive drive resulted in Dustin Hopkins' second quarter blocked 55 yard field goal attempt, second snap of the drive. Kyle Allen on a second and seven shotgun throwaway didn't throw the ball out of bounds. Uh, and the pass could have been intercepted. The pass was like a floater, landed well to the left of the right sideline. That was a bad moment for Kyle Allen. That was a very dangerous, way too casual throwaway. Now he was backing up, but he totally misjudged his throwing away of the football. But third snap of the drive, Kyle Allen, a third and seven, eight yard shotgun completion to Antonio Gandy-Golden. Fourth snap of the drive, Allen, a first and 10, 26 yard shotgun deep completion to Dax Milne down the right sideline on a beautiful pass by Kyle. That was his best throw of the game. Washington's sixth offensive drive resulted in Dustin Hopkins' late second quarter 48-yard field goal. Second snap of the drive, Kyle Allen, a second and nine, 12-yard shotgun completion to Antonio Gandy-Golden with Washington going no huddle. I do believe that Washington should keep Ryan Fitzpatrick, Taylor Heineke, and Kyle Allen on the season opening 53-man roster. You're not getting Allen through waivers to the practice squad, not because he's some all-pro quarterback, but because he is a quarterback. He's a guy who had some success last season, and in today's NFL, in which quarterback has never mattered more, if some team is in need of a good backup or maybe even a solid QB3, Kyle Allen will get scooped up by someone. So to me, you're not getting him to the practice squad. And I do think Washington should have three capable quarterbacks on the team. I found this interesting, though. Ron Rivera, at his day after the game Zoom press conference on Sunday, said that Washington was still trying to decide whether to keep three quarterbacks on the season opening 
53-man roster. Maybe Ron was uh, fibbing. Then again, maybe not. Take a listen. You know, we're, we're working through that right now. I just finished up with the coaches. I'm uh, going to meet with uh, Martin, Marty, uh, Eric, Chris, and uh, and, and uh, Tim, Tim Gribble in a, in a little bit. But, um, you know, as we go through this, that's most certainly a consideration just because of what's happened in the past. Yeah, and what's happened in the past is a reference to Washington starting four quarterbacks over the course of the 2020 season, regular season and postseason. But here's the thing. Washington has started at least three quarterbacks in each of the last three seasons, 2018, 2019, and 2020. To me, Washington absolutely should keep three quarterbacks on its season-opening 53-man roster. As for Steven Montez, like I said, he in the preseason-ending loss to the Ravens at FedEx Field on Saturday evening, played for the entire second half, went just 5 of 10 for 28 yards, no touchdowns, and no interceptions. He was not sacked. Montez also had three carries for eight yards, and the carries to me were the most interesting aspect of his performance. So Ron Rivera told Michael Silver, of the Washington Football Broadcast Network in an interview shortly before the start of the second half that Washington with Montez at quarterback was, quote, gonna run a little bit of the zone read, which he did in college. He was very good at it, end quote. Well, Steven Montez uh, wasn't exactly 2012 RG3 on the read option, and I get it. I mean, the circumstances on Saturday evening were not ideal, uh, but Washington's seventh offensive drive was Washington's first offensive drive of the second half, resulted in a third quarter three and out. First snap of the drive, Montez, a first and 10, three-yard shotgun read option run. Washington's ninth offensive drive resulted in an early fourth quarter punt. Second snap of that drive, the penultimate snap of the third quarter. Montez, a second and five, five-yard shotgun read option run on which he made a nice move to the outside to get the necessary yardage for the first down. So that was a good play. But Washington's 10th offensive drive resulted in a fourth quarter punt. Fifth snap of the drive, Steven Montez, a third and seven shotgun read option run for no gain. It would be nice if Washington could use Steven Montez as a red zone, you know, read option weapon. I mean, assuming you can get him somehow to the active roster at some point. But you know what ended up like not coming up at all during training camp and the now concluded preseason? Steven Montez as Taysom Hill. Remember that? What happened with that? No signs of that. No talk of that. No questions about that. Like nothing. Maybe Washington is keeping that under wraps until the regular season, but this whole Stephen Montez being used as Taysom Hill thing uh, may well turn out to be a big fat nothing. I mean, I feel like that storyline just like completely evaporated over these last few weeks. Uh, Something that was clear on Saturday night was that Ron Rivera was evaluating Antonio Gandy-Golden versus Dax Milne. And maybe, just maybe, it's as simple as two receivers for one spot. And Ron has decided to keep six receivers on Washington's season-opening 53-man roster. And that sixth spot came down to AGG and Milne. I mean, it is worth noting, five receivers did not play on Saturday evening. Ron held out the five guys who presumably are Washington's top five receivers. Terry McLaurin, Curtis Samuel, Adam Humphreys, Cam Sims, Deami Brown. Well, Antonio Gandy-Golden, I thought looked good on Saturday evening. Team high, four receptions for a team high, 39 yards on six targets and playing on 74% of Washington's offensive snaps. Yeah, he played on 74% 
of Washington's offensive snaps. But AGG, look, he's not a burner, but he's got good size. He's got very good hands. He attacks the ball when he catches the ball. I think there's a lot to like about Antonio Gandy-Golden. But Dax Milne has looked good too. And Ron Rivera has not been shy about praising Dax over these last few weeks. So Milne on Saturday evening, three receptions for 36 yards on five targets and playing on 91% of Washington's offensive snaps. How about that? Milne was out there on 91% of Washington's offensive snaps on Saturday night. I'd love to be able to keep both in some form or fashion. Like the way I had been thinking about it was AGG to the active roster, Milne to the practice squad. I would think you could get Milne to the practice squad. I know we go through this every year at this time. We're like, we think all of our guys are so great and there's no way you can get them to the practice squad. And then inevitably it's like you get them all to the practice squad. So I'd like to think you can get Milne to the practice squad. But I tell you what, uh, if Dax Milne is more than just a receiver, if Ron is viewing Dax as a potential return man, then maybe that gets Dax to the active roster. I mean, one of the real shames of this game on Saturday evening was that Washington was not able to do much evaluation in the return game. Washington did not register any punt returns as the Ravens punted just twice the entire game and Washington registered just one kickoff return over seven Ravens kickoffs. Isaiah Wright had a 22-yard kickoff return in the third quarter. So when it came to something that seems pretty competitive, right, the return situation, you weren't really able to get any meaningful work in beyond that Isaiah Wright 22-yard kickoff return in the third quarter. One more item from this preseason ending, Washington blowout loss to the Ravens at FedEx Field on Saturday evening. How about David Bada? David Bada is a German defensive lineman on the Washington football team. And I would argue certainly that no defensive player had a better game on Saturday evening than David Bada did. Now, you know, maybe this means nothing ultimately, but David Bada is an interesting story. So like I said, German defensive lineman, Washington got him in July 2020 as part of the NFL's International Player Pathway Program. Uh, Washington lists Bada as being 6'4 and 293 pounds. He sacked Lamar Jackson on Saturday night. Ravens' first offensive drive resulted in Jake Verity's first quarter missed 40-yard field goal attempt. The eighth snap of that drive was Bada with a first and 10 sack of Lamar for a two-yard loss as Bada sacked Lamar from behind as he scrambled up the A-gap. And then later in the first half, Bada blocked an extra point attempt. Bada blocked Verity's extra point attempt that followed Tyler Huntley's second quarter First and goal, eight-yard I-formation play-action touchdown pass to tight end Eric Tomlinson. Ron Rivera at his post-game press conference on Saturday night on Bada. Oh, he's, you see he's got a lot of natural strength and athleticism. He's got a long ways to go. Um, you know, going forward, going straight ahead is easy. It's all the other nuances of the game that, that, that are new to him. Yeah, he reminds me a lot of F.A. Obata, who we had in Carolina, who's now you know played well for Carolina. Now he's in Buffalo playing well for them. Um, and you see that, that David has that ability to go forward. Uh, but the, the little nuances of, of, of feeling certain things, understanding certain things, he's, he's still learning those things. Um, you know, it, it took F.A. three and a half, almost four years before he really became that guy. And that's pretty much what I see with David. You know, my experience tells me that this is a guy that, you know, three, three and a half years from now, 
uh, about a year and a half from now, he'll 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 be a guy that could come in and, and contribute. But you know, it's kind of neat because of the international program, the way it's set up. It gives us an opportunity to, to to take a young man who really hasn't played a lot of football and develop him, and that's what's really cool about it. You know, this is a nice market inefficiency that the Washington football team is perhaps now exploiting international football players. David Bada from Germany, Samus Reyes from Chile, Benjamin St. Juice from Canada. Now, it's a little different with Benjamin St. Juice because Washington drafted him. He played collegiately in this country, right? Started at Michigan, then transferred to Minnesota. But, you know, there are good potential NFL players all over the world. I mean, good NFL players do not have to be confined to people in the United States. And so if you can exploit that and be among the first teams to really cultivate the international NFL player market, you may well be able to find yourself some good players. We'll see. Well, big news was announced by the Nationals on Sunday morning. We'll get to that after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry with overpriced, underperforming products and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. So this Monday on which we are speaking, August 30th, just happens to be the one-month anniversary of the end of the national sell-off. The national sell-off took place over two days in late July, July 29th and July 30th, the Nationals trading away eight players for 12 prospects, a purge of the Nats roster that was unlike anything that we had seen from the Nats since the franchise 
came to D.C. Well, it is on this one-month anniversary of the end of the sell-off that the Nats are set to promote the top prospect who was acquired in that sell-off. Here we are now, and the Nats are set to welcome to the majors catcher Caber Ruiz. Big news, exciting news announced by the Nats on Sunday morning. Caber Ruiz is coming. The Nats lost two or three games at the New York Mets over the weekend, a fold of 55 and 74 on the season. A 2-1 win on Friday night, a 5-3 loss on Saturday night, a 9-4 loss on Sunday afternoon. But the headline item, if you're a Nats fan coming out of that series, is what will be happening in the following series. The Nats on Sunday morning announced that catcher and top prospect Cabert Ruiz will be making his Nats debut on Monday night in game one of a three-game series against the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park. And the Nats starting pitcher for that game will be Josiah Gray. Ruiz and Gray are the top two prospects in a batch of four prospects that the Nats got back from the Los Angeles Dodgers for Max Scherzer and Trey Turner. That, of course, was the biggest trade of the Nats sell-off. MLB Pipeline has Cabert Ruiz as the number 19 prospect in baseball and Josiah Gray as the number 54 prospect in baseball. And that will be your Nationals battery from Monday night against the Phillies at Nationals Park. So several things stand out to me about the Nats calling up Cabert Ruiz. Number one, the Nats announced that the call-up would be happening before the call-up actually happened. This doesn't happen often. Normally, the way a call-up works is that the team just executes the call-up and announces the call-up as the call-up is happening. In this case, the Nationals are promoting the call-up. The Nationals on Sunday morning announced a call-up that won't be happening until Monday. And this pretty clearly was done to generate excitement for his Nats debut and, yes, to sell tickets to his Nats debut, especially considering that Josiah Gray will be the Nats' starting pitcher. It's impossible to ignore the coincidence here of Monday night is game one of a three-game series against the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park. It's also game one of an eight-game homestand that takes us through a holiday weekend and Labor Day weekend. And so if you are the Nats and you sold off a bunch of players a month ago and you're mired in a rut of being 19 games below 500 on the season and we have about a month left in the season... Yeah, you need to sell some tickets. And yeah, promoting something like the Nats debut of Cabert Ruiz is a way to sell tickets. So there very clearly was a strategery behind this announcement on Sunday morning. Strategery. Yes, strategery. Thank you. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with trying to sell some tickets. I don't blame the Nats for doing that one bit, but I do find that worthy of pointing out. The other thing, too, is that because the Nats announced that Cabert Ruiz was being called up before he was actually called up, the Nats made it clear that someone will be leaving the Nats' Major League roster. You know, you're not just going to call up Cabert Ruiz and add him to your Major League roster. Someone is going to have to leave your Major League roster. Now, rosters are expanding once we get into September. That's obviously not that far away. But for now, some corresponding roster move is going to have to be made. And so the Nats played this game on Sunday with likely multiple guys wondering, well, am I going to be the odd man out here? You know, Tres Pereira was the Nats starting catcher on Sunday afternoon. Did he perhaps play that game on Sunday with this thought of, hmm, is this about to be my last game for the Nationals for a while with Cabert Ruiz coming to town? We don't know. But again, that is kind of an odd dynamic that the Nats set up for themselves 
in announcing on Sunday morning that Caber Ruiz was about to be called up. The second thing that stands out to me about the Nats calling up Caber Ruiz, the notion that the Nats wanted Caber Ruiz at AAA Rochester for the rest of the season turns out to be very incorrect. Now, there was a lot working in favor of that notion. So first of all, the minor league season this year is going through September as opposed to just through August, as is usually the case, because the minor league season got off to a late start due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The Nats just promoted the team's top pitching prospect, Cade Cavalli, from AA Harrisburg to AAA Rochester this past Tuesday. So the thinking was that the Nats wanted Cabert Ruiz to get used to working with Cade Cavalli, with Cade having just been bumped up to AAA Rochester. And the Nats have had two young catchers at the major league level who have been doing well recently, Riley Adams and Tres Barrera. We've talked about them quite a bit. And yet, despite all of these things, Cabert Ruiz is being called up. And the reason that Cabert Ruiz is being called up, beyond you know the potential to sell some tickets here, is that this guy's been killing it. Caber Ruiz, over 20 games for AAA Rochester, had a 942 OPS. He was outstanding. He is ready to be called up to the majors. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the Nats' two current young catchers on the major league roster and Riley Adams and Tres Barrera. But you can't hold back talent, and the Nationals are not holding back talent. And so that's another thing that stands out to me. The Nats, in promoting Caber Ruiz, are very clearly communicating It doesn't matter what other factors may be in play. If you're ready to be called up to the major league level, we're going to call you up to the major league level. And the Nats are doing that here with Caber Ruiz. So when it comes to who's the odd man out, my guess would be Tres Pereira. I would guess that he gets option to AAA Rochester. Like I said, you can bring him back up in just a few days when rosters expand at the major league level from 26 to 28. It also could be that you just have three catchers on your major league roster For the time being here, Davey Martinez in his pregame press conference on Sunday did not dismiss the notion of the Nats keeping three catchers on the major league roster. But yeah, Caper Ruiz is about to become the Nats everyday catcher. I mean, this is going to mean not only someone being demoted in some way, but this also is going to mean less playing time for both Riley Adams and Tres Pereira, even if both guys remain on the major league roster. And Riley Adams has been doing quite well. Adams in this series at the Mets over the weekend was an at starting catcher in games one and two, and he continued to hit uh, Adams in the 2-1 win at the Mets on Friday night, one for three with a double a walk and two strikeouts. Adams in the 5-3 loss at the Mets on Saturday night, one for three with an infield single and a hit by pitch. And the infield single was something else. I mean, remember, Riley Adams is a catcher And yet he, in a Nats one-run seventh, had a leadoff infield single on a 1-2 pitch and then scored from third on a two-out wild pitch by Mets reliever Trevor May for a 3-2 Nats lead. Riley Adams is an athlete. Like, the guy can run a little bit. He's got some athleticism to him. Uh, Riley Adams, so far, over 51 plate appearances at the major league level for the Nats, has an OPS of 1,032. He's done a really good job. The Nats got Adams from the Toronto Blue Jays in the Brad Hand trade. And while Tress Barrera hasn't hit like Riley Adams has hit, Tress has done a pretty good job, I think, all things considered. He was the Nats starting catcher in the 9-4 loss at the Mets on Sunday afternoon, 0-2, but he drew two walks. And something that Tress Barrera has been doing recently is doing really well even when down in counts. Top of the fifth, he worked a one-out nine-pitch walk despite having been down in that count at 1.12. Top of the seventh, he worked a one-out seven-pitch walk despite having been down in that count at 1.12, although he did have a two-out pass ball in the Mets 
one run first. But this is exciting news. I can't wait to see Cabert Ruiz at the major league level making his Nats debut on Monday night. And when we talk about the sell-off, and I know there were some people who were very upset about the Nationals giving up on the season and selling off and especially trading away Trey Turner with the season left at team control. Well, here we are now, a month since the sell-off. And of the 12 prospects who the Nats acquired in the sell-off, the Nats are about to have five of the 12 on the Nats major league roster. In most cases, when a team engages in a sell-off, it takes years for those prospects to make it to the major league level. In this case, a month off the sell-off, five of the 12 prospects will be at the major league level for the Nats. Caber Ruiz, Josiah Gray, Riley Adams, Lane Thomas, and Mason Thompson. This is unbelievable how quickly all of these guys have made it to the majors. And yes, it is a function in part of the state of the Nats. They're not a very good team this season, but that also says something about the major league readiness of a bunch of these guys. And especially in the cases of Gray, Adams, and Thomas, these guys have done well, really well so far. As for the other things that truly mattered for the Nats over the weekend and them losing two or three at the Mets. So Victor Robles was the Nats starting center fielder in just one of the three games. And at this point, if you don't want to say that Victor Robles is no longer the Nats every game center fielder, then you at least have to say that Victor Robles is very much tracking toward no longer being the Nats every game center fielder. Robles was the Nats starting center fielder and number one batter in just one game. The 2-1 went at the Mets on Friday night. He went 0-3 for with three strikeouts. He and a Nats two-run third had a hit by pitch, and that was it. He has had a terrible offensive season Victor Robles on the year has an OPS of just 607. And so Lane Thomas ended up being the Nats starting center fielder and number one batter in games two and three in the series. He also was a Nats starting left fielder and number six batter in game one in the series. Now, he did not do well in games one and three. Thomas in the 2 1 win at the Mets on Friday night, 0 for 4 with two strikeouts. Thomas in the 9 4 loss at the Mets on Sunday afternoon, 0 for 5 with four strikeouts. But Thomas in the 5 3 loss at the Mets, on Saturday night, two for five with an RBI double and another double. He, in the top of the first, had a leadoff full count double, despite having been down at the count at one point, one, two. And whereas Robles has been abysmal offensively this season, Lane Thomas, in a very brief time at the major league level for the Nats, has done really well. He's cooled off a bit lately, but over 44 major league plate appearances with the Nats, Lane Thomas has an 883 OPS, and he just gives you a pulse at the plate. Victor Robles so often doesn't give you a pulse. It's really been alarming how bad he's been offensively this season of having been really bad offensively last season. Now, I've been a proponent of just putting Robles out there every game the rest of the season as an at starting center fielder and leadoff batter and trying to figure out once and for all, is he a legitimate piece moving forward or isn't he? But Davey Martinez, at the very least, doesn't seem to be a fan of this. And while I want to see more Lane Thomas, I also do want to see more of Victor Robles. I'd like to see a little bit less of Yadiel Hernandez. Even though Yadiel is having a good season, uh, I think you could go with this configuration of Robles in center, Thomas in left, and ride that for a little while. But it's not about rewarding Victor Robles. He has not had a good season. We all know that. It's about trying to figure out once and for all, is Robles a piece or isn't he? And maybe Davey and the Nats have already decided on that, but you know, this idea of like, hey, just give Robles the rest of the season and see what happens. The Nats ended up not even giving Robles the next month, okay? Like, we're not even out of August yet, and already it sure seems like if Robles hasn't been supplanted as the Nats every game center fielder, 
at the very least, it's a timeshare at this point. And Lane Thomas was out there as the Nats starting center fielder and leadoff batter in two of the three games. Of course, how the Nats get Lane Thomas in the John Lester trade. The Nats incredibly trading John Lester and his 502 ERA to the St. Louis Cardinals for Thomas. When it came to two other potential building blocks for the Nats over the weekend, Carter Keboom and Luis Garcia, both of those guys had bad series. Uh, Keboom had a really bad series. He was the Nats starting third baseman in all three games. He went 0 for 11 with a walk and five strikeouts. Garcia did not do much in the series with the exception of game one, that 2-1 win on Friday night. He went one for four with a double and two strikeouts and made two key defensive plays in the bottom of the ninth. So Garcia in the top of the ninth of that game had a two-out opposite field double to the left center field gap. And then Garcia in the bottom of the ninth made a great defensive play as he on a Francisco Lindor grounder with Pete Alonso on first made a diving backhanded catch and then literally rolled the baseball via like a shovel toss Tosides Escobar at second base for the force out. And then Garcia initiated a game-ending 4-3 double play. So that was exciting to see. Garcia came up big defensively, certainly, in that ninth inning on Friday night. And he had the double in the top of the ninth. But Garcia, the rest of the weekend, didn't do much. 5-3 loss at the Mets on Saturday night. 0-3 with a walk. 9-4 loss at the Mets on Sunday afternoon. 0-4 with a strikeout. And, you know, we talk about Robles not doing well offensively. I mentioned Robles' OPS on the season at 607. Well, Luis Garcia's OPS over 128 Major League Plate appearances for the Nats this season is 608. Uh, So Luis Garcia has been Robles-esque so far as a Major League batter. Now, there's, of course, plenty of time for Luis Garcia to grow, but I think it's important to remember with Luis Garcia, you know, he was a well-regarded prospect by national standards. He was not a well-regarded prospect like across baseball. Like this was not some top 100 prospect in the sport. And it was always telling to me, that prior to this latest go-round for Garcia at the major league level, the Nats had called him up and demoted him multiple times. Like he'd come up, then gone down, then come up, then gone down. So I'm not sure what the Nats internally think of him. He's getting the shot to be the Nats' everyday second baseman, just like Keyboom is getting the shot to be the Nats' everyday third baseman. But Garcia offensively is not doing very well. Again, a 608 OPS over 128 major league plate appearances this season. Uh, Juan Soto did not do much in the series until game three. Uh, Soto was the Nats starting right fielder and number three batter at all three games in the series. And he did come up big in the game on Sunday afternoon. Soto in that 9-4 loss at the Mets, one for two with a solo homer and two walks. Top of the first, he had a two-out four-pitch walk and a stolen base. Uh, in the Nats, two-run fourth, he had a one-out four-pitch walk. And then Soto in the top of the six, a leadoff opposite field homer to left center field, despite having been down at the count at 1.02, the homer going a projected 401 feet per stat cast. And I thought that the homer was notable in this way. Uh, I'm not a big believer in lineup protection. You hear people bring that up all the time, but that's not to say that lineup protection never exists. It's just, it's something that's been studied many times over the years in sabermetrics. And there really is no evidence that lineup protection is something that's always a thing or constantly a thing. But I think it can, like, at times be a thing. And I actually thought on Sunday afternoon, we had an example of lineup protection. So Josh Bell, in this game on Sunday afternoon, hit two home runs, the first of which came in the top of the fourth. Bell in that inning smashed a one-out first pitch, opposite field, two-run homer to left center field. Uh, That was some shot, that home run when it projected 424 feet per stat cast. Josh Bell was in that starting first baseman, a number four batter in every game in the series. 
So you had Soto in that number three spot in every game, Bell in the number four spot. With Bell homering in the top of the fourth, I thought that that may well have led to Soto getting a pitch or two to hit in the top of the sixth. And sure enough, Soto delivered in that plate appearance with that leadoff home run. So I think that is an instance of a lineup protection scenario playing out. And I did want to point that out because I thought that was interesting in watching the game. Now, Bell had himself a big series, five for 12 with two homers and three singles. He hit two home runs in the loss on Sunday afternoon. He also, in the top of the eighth, had a two-out full count opposite field solo homer to left field. Uh, But Bell in the 5-3 loss at the Mets on Saturday night, two for four with two singles. Bell in the 2-1 win at the Mets on Friday night, one for four with an RBI single. Bell in a Nats two-run third had a one-out RBI single for a 2-0 Nats lead. What other Nats position player to make mention of? Alcides Escobar. He was the Nats starting shortstop and number two batter at all three games in the series. He did not do well in the 9-4 loss at the Mets on Sunday afternoon, 0-4, for 4, but he did really well over the first two games of the series. Escobar in the 2-1 win at the Mets on Friday night, 2-4 for 4 with two singles, did strike out twice. Escobar in the 5-3 loss at the Mets on Saturday night, 3-4 for 4 with an RBI single, two other singles, a stolen base, and a terrific defensive play, a great defensive play for the third out in a one-run Mets fifth on a Jonathan Villar ground out. Escobar made a backhanded stab on the outfield grass while running to his right and then delivering a strong no-hop throw across his body to Josh Bell at first base. The conversation is starting to tick up here of, is Alcides Escobar a part of the 2022 Nationals? And it's the kind of thing that a few months ago would have been laughable. Here's a guy, age 34 season, Nats got him in July from the Kansas City Royals for cash considerations. He had not played in a major league regular season game since the 2018 season, but he's done well enough and been reliable enough as the Nats every game shortstop these last few months to where I think as at the very least, say, a utility infielder for next season, I think Escobar could make some sense. He's not going to cost you much. He's someone who you could potentially trade to a contender next season. He's a guy who puts balls in play. He's a guy who is getting on base at a really nice clip this season. I mean, I've wondered, like, can he keep this up? Well, he is keeping this up. Alcides Escobar, over 198 plate appearances for the Nats, has a 337 on base percentage. That's not bad. You know, I mean, the, the, the slugging percentage isn't much, 365, but a 337 on base, that plays. You can work with that. And he plays a nice shortstop. And he continued to do that over the weekend here at the Mets. You know, it's funny to me, the Mets going into this season gave Francisco Lindor a 10-year, $341 million contract. And I've used that contract as a reason for why the Nats traded away Trey Turner. Turner wanted Lindor money. The Washington Post has confirmed that. And to me, I just don't think that Trey Turner is worth that. I'm not sure that anyone is worth that. Well, have you seen what Francisco Lindor is doing this season? I just made mention of Alcides Escobar's numbers with the Nats. Escobar on the season for the Nats has an OPS of 701. Do you know what Francisco Lindor's OPS is this season for the Mets? You ready for this? 686. Alcides Escobar has a better OPS this season than Francisco Lindor has. And I know, right? Lindor's better than Escobar. I'm not trying to sit here and tell you otherwise. But 10 years, $341 million for Lindor versus cash considerations to the Royals for Escobar. You tell me, which was the better buy? Who's giving you more bang for your buck? The answer, obviously, this season is Escobar. 
And it's another reason why you've got to be so careful as a team when giving out these mega money contracts because they rarely work, even for a guy like Lindor who is gifted. But the bottom line is he has not been that good this season, just like he actually wasn't that good for the Cleveland Indians last season. And I wonder moving forward, are the Mets going to have major regret giving him again a 10-year, $341 million deal? When it came to pitching for the Nets over the weekend, so we'll work backwards in terms of the starting pitching, uh, disappointing outing, very disappointing outing for Eric Fetty on Sunday afternoon, this 9-4 loss at the Mets. He gave up six runs, five earned in five and a third innings. He gave up eight hits, a homer, a triple, and six singles. He did have six strikeouts versus one walk, but he also issued two hit-by-pitches and a run-scoring balk. He threw 99 pitches over the five and a third innings. He, during his post-game press conference, talked about struggling with fastball command. And it just is really disappointing because Fetty, in his previous outing, looked so good. So last Tuesday night, a 5-1 win at the Miami Marlins. Fetty had one of the best starts of his major league career, really. One run in six and a third innings, 10 strikeouts. But what I wondered after that game was, okay, Fetty was good, but how much of that was the Marlins, who are one of the worst hitting teams in the majors? And now looking back on that, you have to say, yeah, the Marlins probably had a little something, something to do with that Fetty performance. And so Fetty goes out there on Sunday afternoon and just isn't that good. And it's not like he was really good initially and then things just fell apart or that he was bad initially, but then got really good. This was kind of like each inning was a problem. Fetty allowed a run in the bottom of the first, two runs in the bottom of the fourth, a run in the bottom of the fifth, and then got charged with two runs in a Mets three-run six. This was Eric Fetty's 11th start since being reinstated from the 10-day injured list, which he had been on due to a left oblique strain. Eric Fetty, over these 11 starts, has allowed 37 earned runs in 52 and two-thirds innings. That translates to an ERA of 632, and that's an 11-start stretch. That's not a tiny sample size. He got off to a nice start this season. First 10 starts, he had an ERA of 333. But his season has fallen off a cliff since then. And Eric Fetty now, on the season over 22 starts, has an ERA of 508. This has gone from being a potential bust-out season for Eric Fetty, a potential he-has-arrived season for Eric Fetty, to now a really bad season. I mean, again, the ERA on the year is at 508. That's worse than what John Lester's ERA was for the Nats. Lester, over 16 starts with the Nats, had an ERA of 502. Fetty, over 22 starts for the Nats this season, has an ERA of 508. Uh, Not good. And it's especially discouraging because a spot in the rotation is Eric Fetty's to have. You know, when it wasn't necessarily certain that Fetty had a spot in the rotation, he was pitching well this season, right? Again, first 10 starts, ERA of 3.33. These last few months, it has been as clear as can be. A spot in the Nats rotation is right there for Eric Fetty, waiting for him to grab it. And instead, Fetty has an ERA of 6.32 over his last 11 starts, 5.08 over all 22 of his starts this season. Uh, the Nats actually did get some good starts in games one and two in this series. And these starts came from journeyman guys and guys who were never supposed to be as part of the Nationals rotation this season. Sean Nolan was the Nats starting pitcher for the 5-3 loss at the Mets on Saturday night. And he did a good job. Two runs in five and a third innings. He had six strikeouts versus no walks. He gave up six hits, two solo homers by Kevin Pillar, a double and three singles. And Nolan threw strikes, 51 strikes versus 20 balls 
on 71 pitches. Look, with Sean Nolan, I mean, he does feel like a road to nowhere, but it is a pretty cool story. He had not pitched in a major league regular season game since October 2015. The Nats on August 11th selected his contract from AAA Rochester. Nolan now has made three starts for the Nats. He was not very good in the first two, but he was quite good in this third one on Saturday night. And then Paolo Espino was terrific in the Nats game one win, the 2-1 win at the Mets on Friday night. Paolo, one run in five innings, seven strikeouts versus no walks. He gave up just three hits, though two of them were extra base hits, a solo homer, a triple, and a single. He threw strikes, a bunch of strikes, 49 strikes versus 19 balls on 68 pitches. And Paolo had a hit, a leadoff single, and the Nats two-run third inning. You know, it's funny with Paolo because he was such a pleasant surprise for the Nats over the first few months of his time with the Nats. In fact, the peak of Paolo Espino was a game against the Mets at Nationals Park. June 28th, Paolo Espino in what was an 8-4 Nats win in a makeup game, tossed five scoreless innings in a spot start. He exited that game with an ERA at 202. But Paolo, since that game over 10 games, including nine starts, had had an ERA of 630. But then Paolo on Friday night at the Mets was back to being peak Paolo. He looked really good. So Paolo in game one, good. Nolan in game two, good. Fetty in game three, not so good. And for the Nats bullpen in this series at the Mets, you had one game that was good, uh, the game one win, 2-1 victory on Friday night. Four Nats relievers combined for four scoreless innings with four strikeouts versus one hit and one walk. Really good stuff in that game from Andres Machado, Sam Clay, Kyle McGowan, and Kyle Finnegan. But then you had problems the rest of the series. The 5-3 loss at the Mets on Saturday night, you had Ryan Harper and Mason Thompson combining to allow three runs in the bottom of the seventh. And then this 9-4 loss at the Mets on Sunday afternoon, you had a big-time problem with Kyle McGowan. He came into the game with a runner on first one out, Nats trailing 5-3 in the bottom of the sixth. And McGowan, on the first pitch that he threw, gave up a first pitch two-run homer to Jonathan Villar for a 7-3 Mets lead. And McGowan then issued a one-out five-pitch walk of Brandon Nimmo before getting the final two outs of the inning. Austin Voth did then toss a perfect bottom of the seventh, but Sam Clay then had issues in the bottom of the eighth, during which he gave up two runs on a leadoff four-pitch walk of Patrick Mazika, one-out single by Jonathan Villar on an 0-2 pitch, a one-out hit-by-pitch of Brandon Nimmo, and a one-out two-run double by Francisco Lindor. So this was another series in which you saw some good from the Nats bullpen, but you saw some really bad stuff too. I mentioned McGowan coming into the game on Sunday and giving up a home run on the first pitch that he threw. Mason Thompson did the same thing in the game on Saturday night. Thompson came into the game, bottom of the seventh, runners on first and second, one out, Nats nursing a 3-2 lead, and Thompson on the first pitch that he threw gave up a pinch, go-ahead, one out, three-run homer to Michael Conforto for a 5-3 Mets lead. Thompson then gave up a one-out double to Jonathan Villar before getting the final two outs and then actually tossing a scoreless bottom of the eighth with two strikeouts. But this is how it is with the Nats bullpen right now. It's being used a ton. Some games, the bullpen is okay, like that game on Friday night. But other games, the bullpen is not okay, like we saw on Saturday night and Sunday afternoon. Like I said, big, big night on Monday night if you're a Nats fan. The Nats debut of Cabert Ruiz in what will be the sixth national start for Josiah Gray. Is that a franchise battery of the future? Josiah Gray as an ace, Cabert Ruiz as a franchise catcher. Game one of that marriage at the major league level is happening Friday night in game one of a three-game series against the Phillies, a 7-0-5 first pitch at Nationals Park. Zach Wheeler will be the Phillies starting pitcher. One more Nats note. Uh, This was interesting. So the Nats on Friday confirmed reporting 
that they had made getting vaccinated for COVID-19 mandatory for all full-time staff. Uh, Employees were notified of the policy on August 12th, had had until last Thursday, August 26th, to provide proof of full vaccination, to provide proof of first shot, or to apply for an exemption. Now, only full-time NAT staff members are subject to this requirement of being vaccinated for COVID-19. Nats players are not mandated to be vaccinated for COVID-19. That's something that would have to be negotiated between Major League Baseball and the MLB Players Association. If you're curious, the majority of Nats players certainly appear to be vaccinated for COVID-19. So you have in baseball what is called Tier 1 personnel. Tier 1 personnel includes players, coaches, trainers, and other support staff. We know that the Nats Tier 1 personnel crossed MLB's threshold of an 85% COVID-19 vaccination rate to have COVID-19 related restrictions eased uh, back in late May. So it does certainly appear like the bulk of Nats players have been vaccinated for COVID-19, if you care about such a thing. Uh, I just find it interesting, though, that in Major League Baseball, teams have not made it mandatory for non-players to be vaccinated for COVID-19. And not that you have to do that, but we are certainly seeing quite a bit of that around the country in the business world, right? Companies making it mandatory, schools making it mandatory to get vaccinated for COVID-19. You know, the NFL back in April effectively mandated COVID-19 vaccination for all NFL support staff. The league reportedly outlined in a memo sent to all 32 teams that support staff, including coaches and trainers, should be vaccinated against COVID-19, quote, unless they have a bona fide medical or religious ground for not doing so, end quote. Anyone who does not fit this category and refuses vaccination is to be ineligible for tier one or tier two status and will, quote, not be permitted access to the football only restricted area and may not work directly or in close proximity with players End quote. So the NFL hasn't technically made it mandatory for non-players to be vaccinated for COVID-19, but the NFL, as it has done with players, has made life awfully difficult for those who do not get vaccinated for COVID-19. And the Nationals are trying to do something similar here and mandating that, again, full-time staff members be vaccinated for COVID-19. Well, there will be many, many things said about the 2021 Orioles, one of the many things that already can be said is that the 2021 Orioles were absolutely owned by the Tampa Bay Rays. The Tampa Bay Rays in the 2021 season were unquestionably the Orioles' daddies. Who is your daddy and what does he do? Yes, Arnold. Thank you. The Rays were the Orioles' daddies in this 2021 season. The Orioles over the weekend completed their 19 games against their American League's rival Tampa Bay Rays in the 2021 MLB regular season. The Orioles over the weekend got swept in three games by the American League's rival Tampa Bay Rays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. A 6-3 loss to the Rays on Friday night a 4-3 loss to the Rays on Saturday night, a 12-8 loss to the Rays on Sunday afternoon. Now, if you're a baseball fan, you likely know that the Rays are one of the best franchises 
in Major League Baseball. Despite a microscopic payroll year in and year out, the Rays rank as one of the best teams in MLB seemingly year in and year out. As we speak on this Monday, the Rays have the best record in the American League at 82 and 48 with the second best run differential in the American League at plus 163. The Rays have won seven consecutive games. So being swept by the Rays, while certainly not laudable, also is understandable, especially when you are a rebuilding and tanking team as the Orioles are. But it wasn't just what happened over the weekend. The Orioles this season ended up going one and 18 against the Rays. Yeah, you heard that right. One and 18. The Orioles played the Rays 19 times this season. The Orioles lost to the Rays 18 times this season. Who is your daddy and what does he do? Yes, Arnold. There's no question about it. The Rays are the Orioles' daddies. And next year on Father's Day, the Orioles owe the Rays a card because the Rays daddied the Orioles throughout this season. It really was something else with the way that this ended up going. And all you can hope is that one day, one day, the O's can repay the favor. But for now, it was Rays domination over the O's in this 2021 MLB season. O's now a major league worst 40 and 89 with a major league worst run differential of minus 231. So this 12-8 loss to the Rays at Camden Yards on Sunday afternoon. Another wretched performance for Spencer Watkins. He struggled for a seventh consecutive start and then mercifully was demoted after the game. I mean, I was wondering how long exactly are the O's going to stick with this guy in the rotation? Spencer Watkins is someone who the Detroit Tigers took in the 30th round of the 2014 MLB draft. The O's this past June 30th selected Watkins' contract from AAA Norfolk. He made his major league debut this season in a relief appearance for the O's on July 2nd. He had been good in each of his first three major league starts, including an outing at the Rays, a 6-1 win at the Rays on July 19th. Watkins in that game, one run in six innings, seven strikeouts. But Watkins in each of his previous six starts had not been good. And then Watkins in this start on Sunday afternoon was bad again. Six runs in five innings. He gave up three homers. The outing left Watkins with an ERA of 747 over 11 games, including 10 starts at the major league level. And the O's after the game, again, mercifully optioned Watkins to AAA Norfolk. Also optioned to AAA Norfolk after the game, reliever Paul Fry. Now, I don't spend much time on this podcast talking about Orioles relievers because You know, the Orioles are a mess in so many ways, and the bullpen is going to change about 15,000 times between now and whenever the O's get good again. But Paul Fry had been someone who was having a good season. Paul Fry, in fact, had been viewed as a potential trade chip for the Orioles about a month ago. But Paul Fry, in this month of August, completely fell off a cliff. So Fry, on Sunday afternoon, gave up a one-out grand slam to Joey Wendell in the top of the seventh, ends up being optioned to AAA Norfolk after the game. So Paul Fry went from trade ship to being sent down to the minors in less than a month. And Paul Fry, over his 10 previous appearances, has allowed 17 earned runs in five and two-thirds innings. I mean, I know relievers get into ruts 
That's about as bad of a rut as you'll ever hear of a reliever getting into. 17 earned runs in five and two-thirds innings. Now, offensively for the O's on Sunday, there were some bright spots. Again, this was a 12-8 loss. I've said this with the Orioles. As bad as they are, the hitting actually isn't that bad. The pitching is what is truly awful. The hitting actually isn't that bad. And sure enough, some big offensive performances for the Orioles on Sunday afternoon. Ryan Mountcastle, your Orioles starting first baseman at number two batter. Another big game, four hits. He had a one-out first pitch single in the Orioles' one-run first, a one-out first pitch solo homer in the bottom of the third, a two-out single in the bottom of the fifth, and a single in the Orioles' two-run seventh. Ryan Mountcastle is killing it in this month of August. Here's his slash line this month. You ready for this? Batting average of 349, on-base percentage of 386, slugging percentage of 762. Yeah, Ryan Mountcastle this month is slugging 762 for the month. That is obviously spectacular. Cedric Mullins had a big game on Sunday afternoon. Mullins is the Orioles starting center fielder and number one batter. Leadoff single in the Orioles two-run seventh, two-run homer in the bottom of the eighth, and he had an outfield assist. Mullins also had a big game in the 6-3 loss to the Rays at Camden Yards on Friday night. Starting center fielder, number one batter in that game, one-out single, bottom of the fifth, two-out first pitch solo homer to right field in the bottom of the ninth, and that was some shot by Mullins. The homer went onto the flag court in going a projected 425 feet per stat cast. You know, by now, Cedric Mullins has had a great year. Here's his slash line for the season. Batting average at 307, on base percentage at 369, slugging percentage of 532. And Austin Hayes came up big on Sunday afternoon and in this series. Hayes as the Orioles starting left fielder and number five batter on Sunday afternoon. Two out RBI single in the bottom of the first. Lead off six pitch walk in the Orioles two run six despite having been down to the count of 1.12 and a one out single in the bottom of the seventh. And Hayes also was big on Friday night in that 6-3 loss to the Rays at Camden Yards. He was a starting left fielder and number five batter in that game. Two out full count, two run homer to dead center in the bottom of the fourth to go with a one-out single in the bottom of the sixth. But that homer by Hayes uh, went a projected 412 feet per stat cast. So bright spots, potential building blocks for the O's. You know I like to point them out. They are what matter the most for the Orioles this season. And uh, it's worth noting that, yes, even though the Orioles continued to be ravaged by the Rays this season, Mountcastle, Mullins, Hayes all coming through in this series. Uh, we did get a good outing from John Means in this series. The 4-3 loss to the Rays at Camden Yards on Saturday night. Means in that game, two runs in six into third innings. He actually tossed six into third scoreless innings, but then gave up back-to-back one-out hits. A single followed by a double was pulled from the game, and both runners scored off reliever Dylan Tate. But Means was good in this game. Five strikeouts versus no walks. He gave up just five hits, two doubles, and three singles. And he threw strikes, 62 strikes versus 33 balls on 95 pitches. And then Matt Harvey in the 6-3 loss to the Rays at Camden Yards on Friday night did the opposite of what he had been doing. So Matt Harvey in each of his previous four starts was good, but then struggled. Well, Harvey in this game on Friday night was bad, but then was good. He gave up three runs in the top of the first, during which he struck out the Rays' first two batters of the game, but then allowed five consecutive Rays to reach base with two outs on a two-out walk followed by four consecutive two-out singles. But Harvey then incredibly got 16 consecutive outs to conclude his outing with five into third perfect innings. It was amazing. Matt Harvey went from really good initially, right, with the two strikeouts to begin his outing, 
then to really bad and allowing, again, five consecutive rays to reach base with two outs, and then was back to being great by, again, concluding his outing by recording 16 consecutive outs to rack up five and a third perfect innings. So go figure Matt Harvey. Also for the O's over the last few days, so the O's did part with Michael Franco. Uh, the O's on Friday announced that infielder Michael Franco had cleared waivers and been granted his release. The O's last Monday, August 23rd, designated Franco for assignment. So Michael Franco was officially signed by the O's this past March 16th, one-year contract. He was to potentially be their every-game third baseman, but he struggled. 403 plate appearances for the O's this regular season. He had a batting average of just 210, an on-base percentage of just 253, a slugging percentage of just 355. He was one of these veteran acquisitions who you thought might be a potential trade ship, but he was so bad that the O's couldn't trade him. And Michael Franco and Matt Harvey are guys who the O's ended up not trading, even though I'm sure the O's would have loved to have traded either guy. The O's did trade infielder Freddie Galvis. That was a good thing that the O's did uh, prior to the MLB trade deadline on July 30th. The O's traded uh, Galvis and Cash considerations to the Philadelphia Phillies for a minor league reliever, Tyler Birch, but no such luck with Michael Franco, the former Philly, who was not good during his time with the O's this season. Next up for the O's, a six-game road trip, three games at the Toronto Blue Jays Monday through Wednesday, followed by three games at the New York Yankees Friday through Sunday. All right, my friends, that will do it for you and me. But just for now, keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday show, episode 134, will feature my official certifiable projected season opening 53-man roster for the Washington football team as it is on Tuesday that we will have the cut down to 53. I guarantee that I will get every one of my Washington football team season opening 53-man roster predictions right, or I will refund every one of you every penny that you have paid for this podcast. I know that's a big guarantee, but that's how confident I am in my Washington football team season opening 53-man roster projection Uh, No, actually, my roster projection will be worth what each of you has had to pay for this podcast. Zero. Uh, But there are a lot of intriguing questions regarding Washington's season opening 53-man roster. So we'll have a good discussion and perhaps some scheduled fun as well. Have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. You know, I've talked to y'all, I think, I've said this before, of wanting to be process-oriented. I'm a little bit more process-oriented.